thanks for the introduction. I got an honorary degree from Clemson uh, last weekend or two weekends ago. Uh, I told the joke, and what makes it funny is it's true. Entering class SAT scores at Clemson were 1,234 for freshmen. The only way I would get a degree at Clemson is for them to give me one. <laughs> because I made 800 on the SAT way back when. That's both sides. <laughs> and I made a joke. I said I should have been a wide receiver in Georgia, which everybody at Clemson liked. <laughs> Another joke is when you make 800 on the SAT, you have very limited career path. Politics being the most obvious, because <laughs> math is not required. <laughs> and the final joke was, and the really sad thing is, I'm one of the smarter ones up here. <laughs> With that uh, understanding of why the country's so screwed up, we'll jump right into this thing. You know, what country would allow a guy who made 800 that CD to try to fix all these problems? Here's the good news. They're actually so simple to fix that someone who made 800 in with my help and others could figure this out. Uh, Social Security, immigration, Medicare, all of these things have one, one thing in common, demographic changes, right? We're just producing less workers and we're having the baby boomers retire. And it affects immigration policy because the native-born workforce is not generating fast enough to deal with future GDP growth. That's why you have job shortages. Another thing is when you have an advanced society, uh, manual labor jobs, low-tech jobs are hard to fill. So this is why we need a rational immigration policy. America, like Western Euro European countries, is pretty much on a flat uh, birth rate uh, paradigm. And the way you bring new people into the country is through immigration. That's what got started. The good news in the 21st century, that's what's going to continue this country. It just needs to be rational. It needs to be based on our terms, not the person wanting to get here. It should be based on economic principles. It should be humane and fair. And you should do it in a way so you're not overrun. And one of the reasons we're not being overrun by Canadians except when they come to Myrtle Beach in the spring. <laughs> they go swimming in March, which all of us wonder about. <laughs> they really enjoy that. <laughs> uh, but they leave. <laughs> They're welcome to come back. The people are coming here as illegal immigrants come here for economic reasons. You know, just the ability to get a job in some of these very corrupt, poor countries is non-existent. If you can make it across our borders, some opportunity uh, uh, is created here under the table uh, in a very oppressive manner to make more money. So immigration is economic at the end of the day, uh, demographic and economic. Well, Social Security has the same component. I've been working with Maya and just about every other group in town, and thanks to this group, a very good group of folks, allow people like me to talk and work with others of like minds, and I can't thank you enough for what you provide, a little bit of support network at Capitol Hill. You know, uh, I've never been a, a tightrope walker, but if I were one, I'd want a safety net because you're liable to fall. Politics is the same way. When you get out there and you do something like immigration or Social Security or entitlement reform, it really helps to have a safety net. And what does organizations like this provide? Potentially a safety net. You know, somebody mentioned the AARP. It's going to be difficult to do entitlement reform without them being on board. Uh, you got the business community, you have uh, all kind of groups. 
that can provide intellectual and moral support to politicians who will hold hands and kind of get out on the tightrope. So you do have a very useful purpose in trying to solve hard problems. Now, Social Security, I've done this about every way I know how to do it. You know, we change senators in South Carolina every 36 years. <laughs> Just about like dealing with Social Security. Every 36, 38 years, we're going to do something. I just wonder if we're going to miss the boat this time. Uh, the, the President Bush tried to put this problem on the table, remember? And to his undying credit, he went all over the country and he tried to inform people about Social Security being insolvent over time because not enough money's coming in and too much is promised going out. You got a lot of people retired, a few people working, and we're all living like South Carolina senators much longer than anybody ever thought. So, the one thing that he did in the debate was create a personal investment account. Remember that debate? Well, that makes some sense to me. I joined that debate. I allowed 2% of the FICA revenue stream to go into a personal account that would be owned by the recipient upon retirement that could be invested in very limited ways, but it would allow a greater growth rate than the current uh, way that we collect money. Well, that whole personal investment account became privatization. You know, the idea of getting 10 to 12 million people right with the law became amnesty. Under, you know, everything comes down to one word. And we got to have three words. I don't want to grow. I want to have three words when you can't do something, not just one. So anyway, so we did the, the personal investment account was seized upon by our Democratic colleagues as a privatization effort and initial efforts of bipartisanship cracked. So President Obama tries to reform health care, God bless him. He does it in a very partisan way, gets no votes in the Senate, I think maybe one vote in the House, and in insuring the uninsured, he takes money out of Medicare and we're all over him. We're taking money out of Medicare, which is struggling to stay afloat to help the uninsured. So this goes both ways. It was a reality, but we focused on scaring people about the loss of Medicare funds to help the seniors who don't have enough money already to pay the Medicare bills. Well, that wasn't just scaring them, that happened to be true. Now, Paul Ryan's budget, 10 years out, goes to, instead of a fee-for-service-based model that we have today, where the government pays every bill that comes in based on what the HIPAA people tell them, HIPAA people tell them to pay, says we're going to allow seniors to have more purchasing power, we're going to give subsidies and let people go out in the private sector and find a plan that is more user friendly for them, and that saves money for Medicare, and you saw what came his way. Social Security is actually the one entitlement program where I think we can get something done. Why? Because we just beat the hell out of each other so long, there's a lot, not a whole lot new to say. <laughs> we, now know, we now know what's going to work and what will not work. How many people believe there will be a personal investment account in any solution that passes the Congress now? Good. I like the idea, but there's not 60 votes for it in the Senate after the stock market crash. That ain't working. Good idea to me, but it's just not politically valid. How many people believe that you'll get the House of Representatives to increase taxes to save Social Security? <laughs> Y'all are very smart or just all still asleep. <laughs> <laughs> the answer is 
zero. <laughs> so if you take taxes off, raising the cap, which is not affecting the rate, I did that, I've done that before, raise the cap. Uh, if that's off the table, if changing the FICA tax rates of 1% for millionaires, if all that's off the table, and personal investment accounts is off the table from a conservative point of view, what's left? Age and formula <coughs> benefit changes, right? Here's the good news. You can achieve solvency by adjusting the age and doing a means test. But every year you wait, the harder it gets. So I'm going to ask a question. To get 75-year solvency, so at the end of the 75-year window, Social Security is solvent and sustainably solvent. And if you just adjusted the age and you means tested, I'm going to take some guesses here. How many people think you could do it by going to 68 and a half? Okay, that's good. Yeah, it's good to play. You're wrong, but it's good to play. <laughs> 69. 70. Yeah. So that surprised me that we would have to go to 70. Two-thirds of the savings to get to solvency when you have only two mechanisms left, which is means testing and age adjustment, two-thirds of the savings came from the age adjustment. In 2022, we hit 67. That was based on the deal between Ronald Reagan and Tip O'Neill. What we do is in 2017, we basically continue the age adjustment three months a year until you get to 70. So by 2032, the new retirement age would be 70. So if you're born in 1970, I think it is, you would be the first group to have to wait until you're 70 to retire. So you got a pretty good path to get to 70. And at 70, we do longevity indexing, so the system will self-correct. And we just take this out of the hands of politicians. On the means testing side, now that you've got my cheat sheet, I was really surprised at this number too. We had to go to the 40th percentile, $43,000. To, to achieve solvency, we had to go all the way to 70, and I didn't think we'd have to go that far. <coughs> we had to do a means test at the $43,000 point. Now, if you're making $45,000 in retirement, it's probably just a few bucks. But for a maximum contributor like myself, uh, it's hundreds of dollars a month and future benefits that would be um, not available because of the difference between inflation and wages. But those two things together got you to solvency. I don't know what the market will bear when it comes to a political solution to Social Security, but I do believe tax increases and in personal accounts growing the pot are pretty much off the table. And between now and 2012, uh, the election's not in November 2012, it's in August of this year. It's the debt ceiling. How we deal with that is going to determine the fate of both parties, I think. If Republicans can cast the debate as we're not going to raise the debt ceiling until we get the country on a path of addressing why we got in debt to begin with, and we're not being mean, we're just being responsible, we'll win, and they'll give in. If it's about what happens if you don't pay all the bills and the catastrophic 
effect on the stock market and you know the, the signal to the world they will win. The way for both of us to win is to raise the debt ceiling with some agreement about entitlements where the money's at that allows you to make a down payment towards solvency. So if you can't go to 70 politically, what about going to 68 or 69? If you can't means test at 43,000, what about at 60? And see if you can wipe out half of the unfunded liability. We've got $5 trillion you need in today's money sitting in our bank somewhere drawing interest to pay the benefits due over the next 75 years. What if you could take half of that off the table by holding hands like Ronald Reagan and Tip O'Neill and saying, okay, we're not going to eat the whole loaf here, but we're going to take a big chunk out of it. And we're going to do some means testing for people who are in better situations to, to accept it. We're going to slowly adjust the age, maybe another year or 18 months from the current system, and call it a day, and make a substantial down payment on entitlement reform, and maybe do some light things on Medicare, and just call it a day. There will be a lot of things left to do, but there will be a start, a foundation for other politicians to build on. I think that's the most likely scenario. Because a lot of Democrats are not going to just solve Social Security without revenue. No Republican is going to raise taxes. So the middle ground is to start marching down to the road of solvency with means testing and age adjustment. And here's what I'd argue my Democratic friends. The best way for upper income Americans to contribute to solvency of Social Security and Medicare is not to raise their taxes today because that affects job creation at a time when we need more jobs in America, is to forego future benefits. In my case, if we did the whole plan, it'd be about 500, almost $500 a month. Close to, you know, over $5,000 in future benefits I would be giving up by adjusting the formula. Well, that is a form of sacrifice, but it's an easier sacrifice. It makes more sense. One, you're taking away something from me I really don't need and haven't planned for totally to have. You're not raising taxes to get there, but it's a substantial amount of money not coming to me. So raising my taxes takes money away from me at a time when I'm in business and I could use it to create jobs. Down the road, taking money off the table that would be owed to me is something I could tolerate and the economy could tolerate, and it is a given by upper-income Americans. So I would argue you don't have to raise taxes to ask upper-income Americans to contribute to solvency. You can readjust their benefits, which is a way to get there. To me, it's better for the economy. It makes more sense for the individual. So with that, I'll just shut up. That's the plan. And, but here's really the <coughs> phenomenal thing about the plan. Who are my two co-sponsors? Rand Paul. Rand Paul and Mike Lee. Not from the Chamber of Commerce, wing of the party. Now, the reason I went to these two guys is because I followed their campaigns and Rand put in a budget yesterday that was incredibly bold, like he just put away Department of Education, Department of Energy, a lot of people were cheering, but about half the defense department, that's where he lost me. I want four, four services, not two. <laughs> All four. that money, I want to go fight uh, when they need to go fight. So we had all kind of budgets on the floor yesterday, different ways of getting America back into a better standing financially. But you can't get there from here without a title reform, right? And I think you're not going to start 
major reforms in Medicare in this environment. So the fallback entitlement reform that's been pretty well vetted that a lot of people depend on called Social Security is a darn good place to start. And with this one thought, when I was a young man uh, going to Carolina, my parents died while I was in college and uh, my sister received survivor benefits through my parents' contribution when she was 13. We needed every penny we could get. Uh, Social Security meant a lot to my family. I'm now 55, I don't have any kids. I could easily give up future benefits. This system called Social Security is gonna be as equally important in the 21st century as it was in 1940. Because defined benefit plans are becoming dinosaurs and we're outliving our 401k plans. So having a robust, solvent social security system is very imperative for the 21st century. 50% of today's seniors would be in poverty without this program called social security. Let's save it for those who need it the most, as people like me who benefited from in the past, to give a little bit in the future, and we'll get this done. God bless you. Take any questions.